Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with host Michael Lerner and his guest John Esterly, Executive Director of the Whitman Institute. John Esterly, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. You and I have been having a series of conversations, both taped and informal, about your work at the Whitman Institute, the intersection of your work at the Whitman Institute with the New School at Commonweal, and the Whitman Institute uh, is a funder of uh, the New School, for which we are grateful. Um, We also simply have a confluence of interests in the nature of dialogue, the nature of critical thinking, um, the nature of good philanthropy. Many subjects interest Mm -hmm. us both. So we previously recorded one conversation together. This is a second conversation in in that series. Um, And I think it might be good for those who haven't heard the first conversation to start with just the fundamentals. Uh, What is the Whitman Institute? Uh, well, the Whitman Institute uh, is a uh, foundation that was um, uh, founded in uh, 1985 by uh, a guy named Fred uh, Crocker Whitman. Uh, and he, Crocker, is um, where the uh, family money came to endow the Institute. And so Fred, in his retirement, had lifelong questions that he wanted to explore uh, through the Institute and um, that were rooted in his own experience as, uh, as many um, uh, donors uh, root their philanthropy in their experience. So he founded the mission with the broad mission of improving people, helping to improve people's thinking and decision making. And for him, the central question he had in founding the Institute, which is still a question that's rooted in our work today, is how do thinking and feeling, cognition and emotion, what's the, how do they interplay to affect how we make decisions and act in the world? And are there ways that you can help people to... Um, uh, have a, a better balance between those two uh, to affect um, more effective uh, action and, and better choices in the world. Um, his interest in that question really was rooted in his own experience. He was born into great wealth, but also uh, great dysfunction. Um, there were uh, suicides and mental illness in the family. Um, so he grew up in um, a, a pretty uh, uh, unstable, to say the least, uh, environment where he survived by clinging to some sense of rationality in what seemed a very irrational environment. So for him, his approach to thinking was why don't people think more rationally than they do? Why do they often make decisions that don't seem... Um, uh, based in, in reasoned thinking. Mm-hmm. So he, he founded the Institute with those questions. Um, and he had a very broad uh, generalist orientation to the question. He actually uh, often said he wanted the Institute to specialize in being generalist. So he was interested in 
genetic predispositions to uh, uh, how, we, how we think, how we feel. He was interested in education. Um, he was interested, uh, this was in the early 80s. He at that time was very interested in the right left brain um, research that was just starting to emerge. Very interested in, in language and how language relates to thinking. And he was a real character, so he, he had some wonderful qualities to him, but he also had some uh, uh, difficult sides um, that were, uh, he carried with him from uh, uh, his, his early years. You know, he was a survivor, but he was pretty, you know, he had psychological wounds, to say the least, himself. So in founding the Institute, uh, in its, over its history, he, uh, he brought uh, both the pluses and the minuses of his own personality to the organization. Um, Sounds like a pretty bright man. He was very bright, yeah. Um, and, uh, but I think what, what was fascinating about him was he really brought his own issues to the Institute for what he worked on and what he wanted to actually help others improve were actually his own mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. So, though he didn't see them that way. Mm -hmm. So, though he talked a lot about critical thinking, he uh, wasn't really uh, the best of critical thinkers, or at least he could be in some arenas, but in other arenas, not. Um, he wanted to help people improve his decision-making, but he wasn't a good decision-maker. Um, and for him, he, I think that this, because I spent many years with him, the, the sad part was that he could really ask good questions, but sometimes he couldn't incorporate those answers into his own psychological makeup. So while he was interested in this question of thinking and emotion, for him it meant pushing emotion away. And kind of the more you can uh, take it out of the equation. Because uh, he was himself unable to really balance the thinking and emotion. Um, and the science suggests that even the best critical thinking is profoundly interactive with emotion. Yes, yeah. So it would have been difficult for him to absorb that aspect of the yes. science. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, you became executive director when? No, about 10 years ago now, yeah. So and around 2000. Yeah. And, the, and when did you join the Institute? Uh, 88. So, so you had 12 years with... Uh, uh, Whitman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and when it was first founded, it was founded as a small operating foundation, right. which means it's in, it's uh, we spent our resources on our own programs. Right. Um, but when he he passed away uh, five years ago, mm -hmm. and at that time, because we had we shifted to being a grant making foundation. Um, uh, and so we're, I, I still feel strongly that we honor the best of his intentions for the Institute and we honor the exploration of his questions. Um, um, and uh, 
his passing was also a liberating event for um, the foundation in terms of us being able to move out in the world much more than we were able to do when, when he I was I understand alive. that. Did he personally connect the dysfunction in his family with the amount of wealth that he grew up with? Yes, actually he was... Uh, he was, I believe, the one who coined the term, though others start have used it long since, of affluenza, uh-huh. which for him he called the disease of inherited wealth. Yes. Um, and having spent 30 years around philanthropy, uh, it really strikes me as true, you know, Aristotle's view that... Uh, the middle station in life is the happiest, neither mm-hmm. very poor nor very rich, mm-hmm. um, because um, the pathologies of great inherited wealth, uh, which some people escape, mm-hmm. but um, I always find myself admiring the people who have escaped the pathologies of great inherited wealth, mm-hmm. because it's so difficult to do. Yeah, it's very challenging, I think. And I wonder... To what degree our culture has really understood what a powerful fact that is. Mm-hmm. Know? Because here we are, a very materialist culture, that you know, a large part of the portion of the population just aspires yeah. to great wealth. But when you see the destruction that great wealth regularly inflicts yeah. on families, it's uh, a real question as to whether from a critical thinking perspective, that is really the goal to which one might want to aspire. Aspire, yeah, yeah. And I think as in, not to generalize too much, but Fred was uh, quite narcissistic. Mm -hmm. Um, But those really masked some pretty deep insecurities too, which Mm -hmm. I think comes a lot of times with great wealth because you're, you're uh, born, and, and often in his case, he was kind of raised by the servants, not by his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when, as you're saying, one of the defining characteristics of who you are in a society are removed right from the beginning. You know, you don't have to prove yourself in terms of what you do. It's all open. Uh, I think once sense of self is is shaky and so entwined with the money it's so right from the get-go how you're seen is tied to your wealth absolutely and so I think what also becomes hard uh, is then You, this sense of people are relating to you because of your money. Right. And so on the one hand, you're, you have that question always of, oh, are people liking me for who I am or who my, mm-hmm. my money? But also there's less of an incentive often to, to change behavior mm-hmm. because you, al- you always probably will have people around. No matter how eccentric you are, what, you know, you will, whatever bubble you create, people will enter into it because you have money. And so I think it makes it hard to then get out of that, that 
narcissistic place. Mm -hmm. I have a, a gifted psychotherapist friend who once said something to me about narcissism that I found very useful. Um, she said that the thing about narcissism is, just as you were saying, it, it masks a very deep insecurity because the narcissistic impulse is to keep checking back in to see that you're there. Mm -hmm. And so in, because of the fear that you're not there in some way or that you're not adequate, there's this constant need to refer back to the mm -hmm. self. Mm -hmm. And somehow I found it helpful to me in being compassionate for narcissistic mm -hmm. people. Because for me, narcissism is one of the more difficult neuroses to cope with. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I have to work a bit to mm -hmm. um, really uh, open compassionately to narcissism. Mm -hmm. And that helped me uh, mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. I, I think those two go together. Well, and I think just for my own experience with Fred, I, mm -hmm. I did always have empathy for him. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was a difficult personality, yeah. but mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that was always there, and we mm -hmm. and we shared our passion mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the mission mm -hmm. of the institute that mm -hmm. that he had. Um, and I also empathized with his struggle to find his voice. Mm -hmm. He really was trying to make sense mm -hmm. of his mm -hmm. experience and. Um, uh, share that, um, but it was hard for him, mm -hmm. hard for him to do. He he never found the right words. Uh, you know, he would, he loved making outlines, but the, <laughs> he couldn't find the right language to to talk about these um, uh, uh, his wisdom as 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 he uh, had seen it. So um, now. In the ten years since you became executive director, but the five years since he died, you've really shaped the institute yourself with your mm -hmm. colleagues and advisors and so forth. How would you describe the institute today? What have you created? Well, I think in terms of uh, that five years, I mean, I, I, I think in one sense we've created, um, you know, a sense of community, uh, a, a network mm -hmm. of people in terms of who we've been supporting and who we've been um, in, interacting with and developing relationships with. Um, I feel we have created or are creating a public argument for both the types of things we fund, this emphasis on paying attention to the processes of dialogue and thinking and raising up the value of supporting those. Um, and also making a, I'd like to think we're making an argument or, or creating a story of a different way of doing philanthropy as well. So I'd like to think that uh, we're creating an impact both through who and what we're funding, but also how we're funding. Um, because I do, you know, we're a smaller foundation and it's maybe grandiose, but I do wanna, want us to have um, a voice in this kind of wider discussion of 
how philanthropy operates. Um, and so we bring a different uh, approach than many foundations, not all. Yeah, others are doing the same. But like, for instance, we're, uh, I'm a big advocate of unrestricted funding or uh, general operating support. Um, and so um, have been trying to make the case for that, um, trying to invite a closer relationship with uh, grantees, if, if they want it, um, uh, and minimize the kind of paperwork and the hoops that people have to go through, uh, both in terms of receiving grants and also reporting on what they're doing, trying to really have more authentic discussions about mm -hmm. what's working, mm -hmm. what are they learning, how are they incorporating that um, going forward. And so in the last five years, some of the attention that we've gotten, you know, on a more national level has, was originally uh, about how we were funding, because that was setting us mm -hmm. apart from, from many foundations. So it's both about what you're funding, which is process, uh, focus on process, mm -hmm. and then how you're funding in terms of creating community with grantees, being closer to grantees, general support, which grantees obviously love, mm -hmm. um, and uh, an effort for a more authentic relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, I may not have the wording exactly right, but on the Whitman Institute website, it talks about the mission being promoting a peaceful and sustainable world uh, through um, uh, dialogue, uh, critical thinking, and vibrant citizen engagement. Is that essentially civic right? Civic engagement. Uh -huh. uh, vibrant civic engagement, right. So I imagine each of those three terms is fairly carefully selected. There's mm -hmm. dialogue, critical thinking, vibrant citizen engagement. Um, let's start with dialogue. Um, the new school which uh, at Commonweal, which you support and which is a community of dialogue, um, reflects my own passion for dialogue. And um, the other day I was rewriting the little mission statement for the new school, and uh, I, uh, the first line in it was something like uh, that the fact that truth emerges through dialogue is something that uh, Socrates, Buber, David Bohm, to name mm -hmm. three, um, have said reflecting an understanding of the dialogic process that has echoed through the ages for wise women and men mm -hmm. who've thought about it. So the question I thought it might be interesting to explore just a little bit is uh, what, what, are the, what are the types of dialogue and what are the conditions under which mm -hmm great dialogue emerges. So, and I honestly don't know the answer. This mm -hmm. is why I thought it would be fun to talk about. But, uh, you know, there's Socratic dialogue. Um, sort of what is Socratic dialogue? Uh, it's a dialogue where the questioner 
truly doesn't pretend to know the answer, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he's enabling the person to think out their own mm -hmm. uh, thinking in a way that for Socrates was to lead them to the possibility that they might end up where he was, which it was that he knew that he did not know. Mm -hmm. And therefore the oracle called him the wisest of men. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. He knew that he didn't know. And so in, at least in the Plato's Socratic plays, uh, you know, there's mm -hmm. that direction, right? right? Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about Buber's, uh, Martin Buber's uh, sense of dialogue, great Jewish philosopher and uh, thinker. And um, I don't know enough about what the criteria of Buber's dialogue was. And then I looked yeah. at David Bohm the other day, I was just looking at this issue and found Bohmian dialogue yeah, uh -huh. on the, the web. And uh, David Bohm, great physicist, and uh, my understanding is that his concept was that you got a group of people together in a sustained way, and that the purpose of the dialogue was to listen for the collective wisdom that emerged. Uh, yeah, so, I think that's my general understanding. Yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. So uh -huh. from your engagement with this, what, what are some of the aspects of, who are some of the people or what are some of the aspects of truly useful dialogue that you've seen or explored? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the Socratic orientation is, is one of just that uh, we, through dialogue, we come to a better understanding of, of what it is we're thinking and believing and, and why that's so. Uh, uh, but really, as you're saying, exploring the unknown. Um, I think, for me, a thread with all those different approaches is a sense of, through dialogue, we... Uh, we explore our thinking together and I think if it's kind of the truest form of dialogue is that, 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 made, that we come to a, a new understanding or a different place than where we started mm -hmm. at. I mean, which is, diff you know, I think with uh, you know, the people talk about the contrast between dialogue and debate. Debate, you usually know where you are. Right. And it's really more about you're wanting to... Persuade the other. Persuade the other person. Um, and I think if uh, a lot of times when people talk about let's have a dialogue, that's really a lot of times, if you're honest, you, you want to persuade maybe some, you know, especially when you're having people from different opinions coming together. Ideally, you're, you're hoping to move them maybe more to your more thinking. And, I think that's true. Um, and, and I often think that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so that's difficult to do. I mean, to really truly engage from a place uh, and of, uh, I think, listening with empathy and curiosity. It, it's, it's it's harder than it sounds, I think. Um, and I think, though, for me, so 
the dialogue, rooted in dialogue would be the sense that it is through dialogue that we discover more about who we are. I mean, and that's why I, I that the whole relationship piece and the boobers piece, uh, um, I think, um, I resonates with me. Um, and so for me, dialogue at its root is also about building relationships. Right. Um, and so uh, I think... That said, there are lots of different models and types of dialogue, and I think depending on the situation and the context, some, some models or forms might be better than, than others. Um, you know, I think they're... And uh, what you're coming into the purpose for. If you're, you know, there can be a form of dialogue that can be more... Let's get our best thinking together, our collaborative thinking to explore an, an issue. Um, uh, but there can be other types of, of dialogue that might be more, let's just create less of a sense of seeing each other as the other. Mm-hmm. You know, more, more coming from a more conflict resolution based. Mm-hmm. And so with that form of dialogue, you might start from a place of telling stories first. Some, you know, first let's find out not about our others, our, our stories. And then we get a sense of why somebody is coming from the place Absolutely. they are. Um, where others, if you have more of a shared sense of who's in the room and why they're there, you might go <coughs> much more into, um, uh, you know, kind of a collaborative dialogue decision-making process or something like that. Um, we, we share an admiration for Parker Palmer's mm-hmm. work. And um, Parker Palmer, the great Quaker activist who I admire beyond words, really. Um, and he, um, what he really did was to take a Quaker methodology of... Uh, of the contemplative silence in which Quakers sit, and then when people feel moved, they speak into the silence, Mm -hmm. and uh, others simply listen receptively. Um, And, but you can also request a clearing circle where uh, you have a, a, a major life question, and so you gather a small group of trusted people and you say the question, and they spend several hours with you asking clarifying questions that do not seek to move you in any direction, but seek to help you Mm -hmm. discern what your truth is. Mm -hmm. So he took these two methodologies, both both the speaking truth into the silence and the, the clearing circle, and created this extraordinary, uh, methodology in a series of books. Most recent, I think, is called Toward a Hidden Wholeness, mm-hmm. um, which describes the methodology in detail. But working with teachers, but also with lawyers and physicians and, and many other groups, help people understand the conditions under which this kind of dialogue was optimally done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the conditions were things like 
a quiet, well-lighted, beautiful place, no more than 15 people in the room. A ground rules like don't fix, don't set straight, don't, yeah. you know, don't try to lead anybody in any direction. Uh, and then he uses uh, poetry, actually, usually, but mm -hmm. it can be any art, uh, because he also subscribes to Emily Dickinson's beautiful line, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so he uses poetry, or others use other things, as a third object introduced, it's like the storytelling, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. introduces the, the poem, and then allows people to respond to the poem, therefore creating the artistic equivalent of speaking into a, a shared mm -hmm. silence. Mm -hmm. But I take Palmer, for me, as, as really an extraordinary example of somebody who has discovered uh, the conditions that optimize dialogue in what I regard as the deepest sense, which is nourishing the capacity for each person to yeah. find their truth. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after a short break. Yeah, yeah I, I uh, uh, admire his work too. And, and what about the Clearness Committee, what uh, is um, intriguing about that is just on a process level, so you have someone who has their issue, or and this is as I that they present and they talk about, and then the people list, they are just listening. They're not asked, they're not interrupting, they're not until they have said what they want to say about their issue. And then the discipline for the listeners is only to ask uh, questions that will, um, they think will help serve this person. Not leading questions. Not leading questions, but, yeah. but figure and think through. Exactly. And, and so you're wanting to be curious, but you're checking the questions that are just your own curiosity that might not be in service of this person. In other words, like, oh, well, I'm curious why, you know, yeah. you had this, why is this relationship or what's happening with that? No, you, you... You check your, you're curious, but you put your curiosity really in service of helping the other person figure out. Right, and it's also not coming from the assumption that you have some greater spiritual wisdom and that you're going to lead the person toward your particular yeah. thing. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful Your feedback can only be in the form of questions. Right. It's no, not advice, it's not, uh, you know, why don't you do this? Which I think, um, and that, I th uh, it's maybe going off on a tangent, but, um, you know, I, last time we did talk about, you know, listening being such a core piece of dialogue. And <clears throat> I think as time has gone on for me, I have a greater awareness of different forms of listening as well. And I think... I can, I'm, uh, as time has gone, I'm, I'm more struck sometimes about the power of listening as a witness. And I think that oftentimes, if someone's come talking about something that's troubling them, or they're uh, struggling with something, or they're 
feeling bad, I think a lot of times our inclination is to want to make them feel better. To fix it. To fix it. So we, we listen from the right. immediate problem-solving place when that's not really what they want to hear. That's uh, right. People, they just want to have that acknowledgement, this is really hard. Or, yeah, I can really get why you're, why you're feeling that. Because I, I think sometimes we go to the problem-solving place so that we hop out of our own discomfort of just sitting with those difficult feelings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so I think dialogue isn't problem-solving a lot of times. You know, um, it, it's, it's more of a reflective exploration. Um, uh, not that problem solving and isn't tremendously important, it is, but sometimes you want the nature of the dialogue to be uh, not about, oh, how do we fix this and what do we do? Especially if you get a group together. And uh, I think sometimes with some of the... <clears throat> organizations we work with who maybe be bringing staff together in a more reflective dialogic space and they intentionally will go this isn't a problem solving space this isn't the hour where we're going to necessarily figure out okay you should do this with it but it's more an exploration of how the work is affecting them and what what they're bringing to the work does that make sense makes all the sense in the world Um, you are also the Chair, I believe, I'm not sure the title, of a grantmaker group involved with these issues. Can you remind me the name of the group? Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement, um, right. PACE. PACE. And you are the chair? I'm the board chair. Board yeah. chair. And recently, a few months ago, you invited me to a meeting of uh, PACE in San Francisco, which I was enthusiastic to come to. And one of the things that emerged at that meeting, several things emerged at the meeting. One was that I believe the Whitman Institute really is the only foundation in the country with a a pure focus on dialogue, critical thinking, and citizen engagement. In other words, many other funders have pieces of it Mm -hmm. in support of their broader missions. But Really, the Whitman Institute is alone, I think, in that. Mm -hmm. What was also striking to me was in the conversation about citizen engagement, something very relevant to what we've just been talking about emerged. And again, it speaks to the different uses of dialogue. So two forms of citizen engagement, one in which, um, which really did honor... The, the kind of pure process model that we've been talking about, where the facilitators of a, a process in the community simply wanted to be sure that all the constituencies were heard and that their voices were present. Mm-hmm. And so there was like a, just a complete commitment to that. Mm-hmm. The other, and as you say, equally valid approach, was uh, organizations, grantees, um, who really did have a place they wanted to arrive at, if possible, through mm-hmm. the dialogic process. Mm-hmm. And, for example, 
some grantees uh, rightly felt that uh, disempowered, uh, uh, low-income communities needed to be systematically privileged in the dialogic process so that their voices could be mm -hmm. truly heard and have a guiding role. But it might also be um, civic engagement in the sense that many foundations use the word, which is uh, engaging citizens in a particular political vector or social vector. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me in PACE, uh, this philanthropy group, you have both kinds of, of uses of dialogue mm -hmm. represented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that there is, you know, there's tensions between those two orientations and also areas of, of commonality right. around that. And one, but that, that piece of, you know, uh, saying, well, we're, we're leading with what we want to have happen, mm -hmm. more social, uh, a social justice frame or, what, or, or a strong issue orientation. Mm -hmm. <coughs> uh, uh, and then the other one, as, as you say, is more about including everybody's voice and, and um, not necessarily saying this is where we want to end up with. Right. Uh, right. And sometimes so, and so those, there, there can be tensions between those two, two approaches which are, which are understandable. Um, I think, you know, in terms, my own observation now at this point is that in terms of certainly foundation support, most want to see <coughs> an issue attached. Right, they want know, an outcome. They want an outcome around policy or movement and and that so I think for <clears throat> I think the challenge for for more of the folks who were coming from that more deliberative democracy place that's really emphasizing citizen voice is to go how can what they know about good process be helped to inform the work of people working in different issue, issue areas. Um, because I think the challenge for a lot of uh, uh, people coming from the social justice uh, uh, realm, and, I, and your interview with Colin Greer, I think he started getting into this at the end of your interview with them, is that they haven't done a good job of being in dialogue with people who share different uh, perspectives. That's and, right, Colin so, Greer. You know, yeah. Colin Greer being the president of the New World Fund, and I talked to him about a play he'd written about Spinoza and, and uh, related issues of philanthropy. Um, you uh, expressed at the beginning, before we started recording the conversation, an interest in uh, talking a little about uh, the new school at mm -hmm. Commonweal and uh, the connection for you between uh, the goals of the Whitman Institute and the new school, and I'm, I'm genuinely interested in, in hearing your thoughts about that. Well, uh, I'm glad you raised that up because for me it was the new school links to what I was just talking about in a way um, because I see the new school as a way 
as, as a form of civic engagement, and it's creating a community of dialogue. Because one of the uh, challenges for people who promoting process-oriented work and dialogue is how do you get beyond the temporary engagement? You know, you have a, you know, there's lots of different models, groups call, you know, where you bring people together for a form of dialogue. And you can have a good meeting and a lot goes on, but then it's like, what happens after? How do, do, does this really... So a big question is, how do you embed these processes in communities in an ongoing way? And, and so for me, New School is, is uh, one uh, emerging story of how you do how you embed these processes in the community. And also, you know, we've talked before about one of the things you've learned with the new school so far is the power of of um, people coming together in the physical space. That's right. That you know originally you thought you originally I thought it would be these telephone interviews, which we've done. Yes. Yeah, right, right. But I, I think for this question of embeddedness for right. me has also increasingly links to the notion of space, actual right. physical space, right. so that when people come to a place, they're associating it with a particular way of being and engagement. And what I also, the new school on, the, on those levels, um, uh, I think uh, has, a, has an emerging story that's, that's really interesting. And I think, though, what is... Uh, different about the new school is its commitment right from the beginning of of being very emergent mm -hmm. of really saying it's about exploration mm -hmm. and not necessarily knowing where that's going to go but saying in pulling together who's here and who we come in contact with something is going to be created of value and so um, uh, uh, that's, you know, I, I'd like to hear you, you talk more about um, uh, uh, what you uh, uh, thought in founding the new school. But I'll just, one other point I want to add to it that I think is also very compelling is that new school is linked to Commonweal. Mm -hmm. And so, which has all these other programs that are more targeted and uh, focused and issue-based. So what I uh, love in terms of organizationally what you've been doing is you're saying you can do both and. You can be focused and issue-based and you can create a space growing out of the organization for exploration and dialogue and going into this more unknown place. Because I think a lot of times we think, and it's very understandable, and certainly for organizations, they, it, it's an either-or thing. Um, and often, very understandably, because of constraints on time and resources, the reflective, dialogic piece goes because it's, well, it's seen as an extra or it's right. something nice to do. And I think given the times we're in, 
we need to rethink that, or organizations need to rethink that if they don't create that dialogic and re reflective space and make that a core piece of what, how they w move, um, I don't know that they're going to be able to uh, uh, swim and adapt and move in, in a world of great uncertainty and ambiguity and um, constant change. I agree with that. Um, you know, it reminds me of um, our friend and colleague, Bill Drayton, who started the Ashoka Fellows. And, and their motto now is sort of everyone a social entrepreneur. And uh, they started out by trying to identify these extraordinary social entrepreneurs around the world who had ideas that they wouldn't rest until they changed some mm -hmm. key aspect of a nation, a culture, whatever it was, and did extraordinary work. But over time, Bill and his colleagues came to the conclusion that social change is emerging so rapidly that top-down solutions are simply not going to work. Uh, this is the same point mm -hmm. Bill McKibben makes in his new book called Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H, mm -hmm. that we're, we're living on a new planet, literally, that, that it's a harder, more difficult planet with climate change, and I could add 20 other vectors mm -hmm. that have changed. And so um, both Drayton and McKibben are arguing for the necessity of local resiliency and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and of creating um, people and communities uh, that have the capacity to respond to very rapidly changing situations, some of which are going to be brutal. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, yeah. all we have to do is look at the Gulf Coast yeah. right now. Yeah. That's a truly brutal situation economically, environmentally, and psychologically. Yeah. Psychologically, the level of brutality of this in all of our imaginations, but for the people of the Gulf Coast, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and for me personally, since you asked, um, the New School is one of the most creative things I've been involved with in the 34 years um, since we started Commonweal. And it's precisely because every other project, you know, 12 major projects at any given time, uh, right now in about seven area, major areas of work, you know, cancer and Rachel Remen's work with physicians and environmental health and permaculture gardening and juvenile justice and ocean reform and the like. Uh, but each one is led by a absolute authority and expert in their field who is focused like a laser on moving the field forward. And, and at first, I just wanted to start the new school out of a personal need for, you know, some community of dialogue and conversation. Mm -hmm. I just felt parched in that area of my life and of community life in West Marin. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to be able to call people and have great conversations with them, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but what emerged was that it turned out that calling people and having great conversations was wonderful, but far more wonderful was when we could gather people in community and have the conversations there. And that it was building resilient community, you know, mm -hmm. in a very powerful way. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, 
I'm really thrilled about it. Um, and uh, so my sense is that what we're learning from this focus on the emergent is that we really, we really can, in some sense, trust that if we're open to sort of the, the way I think about it is if we're open to the invisible strands of what the universe is bringing to us and are just paying attention, mm-hmm. really it, I want to look further into this Bohmian dialogue based mm. David Bohm's work mm-hmm. because I really believe that although we're not using his explicit methodology yet, mm-hmm. um, that the broader gestalt of what we're doing really is this process of listening to the whole, mm-hmm. deep yeah. listening to the whole. And just as in Parker Palmer's uh, clearing circles, that's done with an individual. Yeah. What happens when you listen in a community? You know? mm-hmm. and, and what emerges that wants to be explored more? Mm-hmm. And I think... <clears throat> Uh, a related question for that for me oftentimes is in doing that, can we sometimes check our identities at the door? Absolutely. A bit in terms of, oh, I'm a, you know, even if it's looking at a problem, you know, it's like, can you come in from a more multi, in, in, engage in a more multidisciplinary approach rather than? just coming through with your perspective, really a willingness to, again, to hear and have your own sense of, of thinking, you know, expanded. You know, and then one other point I wanted to, because I think it's important about New School and Commonweal, which you've mentioned before too, is that with that community that you, I, I believe you said you have found that People who didn't have a way into Commonweal before now That's right. Did. It's been amazing. And so I think for me that kind of, di- again, the dialogue thinking in the civic engage it is a form of civic engagement, that it actually opens up and expands organizations in, in whole new ways. It does. Um, it does. Um, any other pieces? We're coming toward the end. Any other pieces that you wanted to cover? Um, I think uh, would be more just to, uh, hearing from you a little bit more in terms of uh, you know your own. When we were talking about philanthropy before, and we've had discussions about this before too, um, and you've written uh, a, with a gift observed. Just, um, I guess, maybe your own, some of your own thinking at the moment in terms of uh, either philanthropy generally or even what you, your, your thoughts about the Institute vis-a-vis um, the themes you've written about uh, in the past. Well, thank you for asking. I think... Um, It's actually, let's go to the heart of this. One of the things that's fascinating is 
all the dynamics between us. Um, you are a supporter of our work at Commonweal, the New School, so I am a grantee of yours. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I'm also responsible for two small foundations, we're colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, um, and at the same time, both of us, in who we are characterologically, we happen to have the capacity to check our identities at the door uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, that is easier for some people and harder for others. And it's easy for us to make an assumption that because we happen to have that capacity, that somehow that is a superior capacity uh, over people who really need to stay in their identity, uh, which is often trying to get something very important done in mm -hmm. the world. They don't. Mm -hmm. And actually, I have a friend in environmental health advocacy, which I'm very involved with, who says, you know, Michael, the trouble with you is that you're always reaching out to the farthest out person in the room, trying to include them. Mm -hmm. And so from the point of view of getting something done in environmental mm -hmm. health advocacy, that can be problematic mm -hmm. as well as useful. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I try not to privilege the fact that characterologically, I do tend to t check yes, my identity yes. at the uh, door. Uh -huh. And almost pathologically, personally, I can see things from other people's points of view. It's mm -hmm. just who mm -hmm. I am. So that for me, uh, it's not at all hard to understand radical Islam, just to take that as an mm -hmm. example. Given the life experience of people on the Gaza Strip, or people who have uh, felt themselves to be uh, uh, oppressed, for want of a better mm -hmm. word, by the West for, you know, 500 years mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, characterologically, I, I have that bent uh, toward checking my identity, mm -hmm. um, and it's not always a useful mm -hmm. thing. No, I, 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 yeah, I yeah. agree. Uh, so, in... One of the things I deeply admire about the Whitman Institute is not only the grants you've made to organizations to engage in dialogue and critical thinking and uh, civic engagement, but also the relationships that you've created. So you hold these annual or biannual meetings mm -hmm. of your grantees, and people get together, and they develop relationships among them. Mm -hmm. um, and that is an extraordinarily powerful aspect of what you're doing, is creating community uh, as, a, as a function of a modest mm -hmm. uh, you know, grant resource. When the MacArthur Foundation, which is huge, created the MacArthur Prize Fellowships, uh, and I was uh, fortunate to get one in 1983, Early on, they had these unbelievable meetings where they brought all the MacArthur Fellows together. They were the most extraordinary meetings okay. I've ever been at, almost. Mm -hmm. They stopped doing it. <laughs> they stopped doing it because they didn't see the value added. Mm. Give me a break. They, they had a sense that making the individual awards was worthwhile, but they didn't get what they had created. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine, Joan Abramson, has gone on to continue to invite the fellows together, you know. Um, but I think that a very creative aspect of what you've done is that, you know, community mm -hmm. of work. And in terms of, you know, where we are in philanthropy, I really agree with you that um, the uh, dialogic and civic engagement uh, uh, and critical thinking issues uh, are a key aspect of what we need to do. Um, 
you know from my writing that I find um, the question of whether philanthropy writ large is good for America to be an open question because it really typically historically has protected uh, the interests and perspectives of the uh, donor class from which philanthropy comes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so progressive philanthropy has tended to be a kind of a natural aberration that the children of wealthy people begin to develop progressive interests. But philanthropy writ large really has protected those uh, interests. Uh, I'm not sure that will ever change. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do believe is that American society would probably even be more troubled if we didn't have philanthropy because it does create independent power bases separate from business and government. And I think in the very challenged world that we're living in that the, that the possibility that these independent power bases may move toward a more humane, more expansive perspective than their original class origin is one of the better hopes that we mm-hmm. have for yeah. So, yeah. uh, John Esterly, thank you for being with us at the New School. Oh, thank you, Michael, for having me back again. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org new school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.